0: Industry players are trying to get um, closer to their customers these days because they have realized that uh, driving their customer experience and and kind of dictating um, how the customer experience should look like and and managing that more actively actually uh, brings business um, success. In the old world, um, you were making money through selling the car and then somehow um, hoping that after three years' time somebody's coming back and and, and would buy from your brand again. I wouldn't go that far that I would say that kind of data is a new fuel and everything is data, but certainly data will help to identify new sources of business. This is kind of uh, uh, old-school marketing that you are just pushing messages out there and you hope that they hit somebody. Um, What consumers of the future want is a true dialogue.
1: Hi, welcome to the Experience Cafe. My name is John, and today we're going to be talking about what's happening in direct consumer, the key trends. And to discuss the topic today, I have my esteemed colleague Jens Sulik. Jens, do you want to give us a quick introduction around who you
0: are and why you're qualified to talk about direct consumer? Sure. Thank you very much for having me, John. Um, So my name is Jens. I'm uh, currently the co-lead of IBM iX in DACH. And uh, before that, I uh, was part of the automotive industry for 16 years. And uh, after that, I was with McKinsey for three years and I helped marketing sales and service organizations um, with growth and uh, creating new experiences. And uh, one part of that uh, was also the shift into direct to consumer. And uh, we see this a lot at the moment happening also in automotive. And uh, very happy to give some insights um, and also some background stories uh, around that topic. Fantastic! And of
1: course, what's happening in automotive is also happening in other consumer-based industries, right? Um, yes. And uh, so, I'm looking forward to, to getting further into this topic. But before we do that, tell me two truths and a lie about yourself.
0: All right. So you, um, uh, there's definitely some automotive going on in, in my life. So. Um, The first fact is that I have a professional um, racing license. The second fact is that I used to be the CMO of Porsche in Europe. And the third fun fact is that my half-brother is the president of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, guess what is wrong?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, governor of Herzegovina, you Um, Mm. said. I'm going to say that's probably true, and I'm going to go with the professional racing driver. Qualification is the lie. Is that right?
0: No, that's that's true. So I have a professional racing uh, license that I got during my ten years at, at Porsche. Uh, the lie is actually um, the uh, the president of uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. The truth behind that story is um, during the Yugoslavian war we had uh, a refugee taken into our family, and uh, his name is Gemal Gemal Biedic. That is actually the name of uh, the the former president of Bosnia-Herzegovina because he is actually a a grandchild of the former president of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which we found out only after one and a half years that he was living with us because he was in fear that somebody would find out. So quite a a story behind that as well. Interesting. And where is he now? Mm. He's back in uh, Sarajevo. And funnily, he's also now running his own digital agency in Sarajevo. And uh, there's... Still very strong ties between our families and I'm uh, uh, in, in direct contact with him going on.
1: Fantastic. fantastic. All right. So, so let's dive into direct-to-consumer. What's driving this trend in the market? I, I guess obviously you've seen in automotive, but I suspect there's some things that are more broadly um, relevant to other industries as well.
0: Yeah. So I would say there are two um, main drivers for direct-to-consumer. One is um, the cost of sales which in direct-to-consumer can be much lower. So if you are uh, eliminating the intermediary between yourself as the manufacturer and the um, end consumer, you are actually not having to pay some of the margin um, to to your agent or to your intermediary. Uh, The other fact is that um, industry players are trying to get um, closer to their customers these days because they have realized that uh, driving their customer experience and and kind of dictating um, how the customer experience should look like and and managing that more actively actually uh, brings business um, success. And, uh, yeah, I would say these are the two main drivers why this direct-to-consumer topic has evolved so much.
1: And I I guess, um, so so you alluded to the fact that if you can own the customer experience, you can then effectively broaden your, your value proposition to that, um, that customer um, and potentially extend the, the, the offering and switch from more of a commodity product to much more value added proposition, I suspect.
0: That's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that you can increase its quality massively by directly interacting with the, with the customer. So, um, if you are having a third party being the kind of uh, uh, agent in between yourself and, and the and the client, you do not have direct influence on how he or she is actually um, interacting with the clients. If you do it yourself, then you um, have much more power on, and control over that customer experience, and also we are working for a technology company. <laughs> uh, new technologies actually enabled a lot of that uh, direct interaction in the last couple of years. And uh, that also plays um, a, a huge aspect in the current um, move towards direct to consumer, I would say.
1: Okay, great. So um, I guess in, in moving to traditional sort of supply chain where you mean the producer of the good or the services traditionally in a B2B model, um, selling to wholesalers or retailers now selling direct to customers you're creating by definition a channel conflict um how so if you're a new startup that's easy right so i can sell razor blades to you on a subscription-based service uh we've, we've got some great examples from that yeah. in the market but if i'm an established player um like for instance the automotive industry or have an established value chain i'm now disintermediating potentially my my channel partners right how are Companies thinking about that and how they're dealing with that challenge?
0: Yeah, that is absolutely a big challenge uh, at the moment for the established OEMs because there are new players like uh, Tesla or NIO coming into the uh, automotive world. And because they are um, starting greenfield, they can directly start with the models that they would like to to use. Uh, With the established OEMs, they have uh, strong ties to their third party dealer network. And they have to find clever um, technology, but also uh, legal constructs uh, constructs how to to deal with that that problem um, and to take everybody onto that journey. And uh, the automotive industry is currently looking into um, establishing um, agency contracts with all of their third-party retailers, which means that um, the classical model was that the actual metal, of the car was sold to the dealers, and then the dealers sold that on um, to to the end customer. In the future, um, the the th- uh, third party retailer is actually acting as an agent, which means that the end consumer contract is between the OEM and uh, the consumer directly, and the agent gets a f- um, um, uh, a reward for that. Effectively, yeah. Uh... Yeah, and the OEM
1: then takes on the cost of inventory, I suspect. Yes. Um, and uh, the agent effectively moves to a more commission sales-based approach. Right? A- exactly right.
0: For the service that they provide. And there's there's a huge task to be done to now figure out what are the new rules of the game, right? Because you said it uh, right with the inventory. The OEM now owns the inventory, so that's good for the for the retailer. But um on the other hand, um of course the OEMs want also uh because they have to bear that burden, <laughs> they want uh, something back and then uh they are currently renegotiating the um um the 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 the, the margins that they are handing to the to the third party retailers and that's causing some issues in the dealer networks at the moment. Yeah, and,
1: and I guess that's a big challenge in terms of the shift to make where you go from a, a customer base of maybe a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand, to a couple of million in terms of orders of magnitude, complexity of fulfillment. Um, and to how do you create that direct one-to-one relationship with that end customer? Yes. So, so there's a whole, that's, that's kind of a different game to be in, right? Compared to... to
0: yeah, it's all. a huge, it's a huge shift um, for the OEMs. They all of a sudden have to do things that they haven't done in the past and they also don't have the capabilities yet uh, in order to deal directly with uh, the customers. And that's uh, another challenge that they are currently facing that they have to build up these new capabilities and they also have to learn how to directly interact with uh, customers. And we can already hear in the market that in some cases, uh, customers are already complaining because they are used to something different and they don't get the right level of service uh, anymore. Yeah, and I guess there's
1: a, it's a logistical headache to see how do you, yeah, you used to ship 100 products to so-and-so and, and the distribution network would take care of it. Um, so I guess there's both yeah, infrastructure challenges and, and supply chain challenges around how you manage that.
0: Yeah, and I would also say a lot of communication challenges because um, the customer, he doesn't, want to differentiate am i currently talking to the dealer or am i currently talking to the oem for him it's one brand and he always wants to have one perfect customer experience uh, no matter also what channel they are using is it a direct channel for example the website that they are interacting with that is run by the oem or is it the uh, local dealership and that also needs to be um orchestrated somehow and of course technology needs to play a, a huge part in that to enable this
1: yeah and i guess one of the benefits is if you own that relationship with the end customer before um as a as a b2b relationship you never have had a relationship with the end customer once they've bought your product that relationship can continue right and you can um look to expand that to other areas so so in the car example i guess there's value-added services you can Provider if it's in this new world of connected vehicles, there's additional
0: over-the-air updates and things you can can provide. That is, I would say, exactly the motivation. Why the OEMs are now spending so much money and uh, time and efforts into uh, introducing these agency models and direct-to-consumer kind of formats. um, Because they have realized that the future business is also an as-a-service business and um, they know that they need to own the customer relationship and the, all the customer data um, in, the, in the future. Otherwise, they will lose out on certain bis- value-added businesses. Um, and because they don't want to lose that, that business, they are now getting ready to be able to own the customer data and to own the direct link to all the, the, the relationship with the, with the customers. And as you can imagine, uh, the retailers are not all happy about this. Yeah, because they get pretty much constrained in
1: terms of what the, the value add is in that proposition. But actually linking to that, because the other value add is the after-sales service and support, um, where so in, in the, the motor vehicle kind of industry, that becomes a key factor around how do you service the vehicle. What's the relationship between the, the agent and the OEM in that instance? How, how do you see that changing?
0: Yeah, so in the old w- world, um, you were making money through selling the car and then somehow um, hoping that after three years time, somebody's coming back and, and, and would buy from your brand again, right? These days, it's much more complex. A, um, the sheer sell of the, um, of the vehicle is, is, is only a portion of the overall money that you're making. It's the after-sales services, which are also important. But now with EV um, um, technology, also the after-sales services are, are reducing. So other value-added services and mobility as a service offers are becoming much more uh, important to the overall profit and loss of, a, of an OEM. And uh, if, if that means you need a constant communication and constant touch points with the customer and you want to bring him into your ecosystem. And we all know that from Apple, for example. Yeah, You interact quite a bit with, with, with Apple during the whole day. And uh, that means that once you have bought into the ecosystem, you stay in that ecosystem and you book again and again uh, services. And, and also then when it comes to the renewal of the car, because you don't want to leave that ecosystem because you have everything already in that ecosystem. You stay in there and you get a new car from uh, from the same manufacturer. That is the big bet that currently the OEMs are, are taking. Yeah, and I guess there's a different almost business
1: model associated with that um, in terms of, as you do, we're selling a vehicle as a service, Although you could argue it's really as a service is just a, a leasing subscription model by yeah. another name. Um, but I guess it's the value of things that you can put on top of that platform which becomes interesting. Um, and I guess if you've got the data on how your end customers using the product, um, you can start to do some interesting things. Uh, for instance, I, I guess you could get into providing co-insurance based on
0: driver habits and
1: behaviors, uh, amongst other things, I'm sure.
0: Yes. No, absolutely right. And um, I wouldn't go that far that I would say that kind of data is a new fuel and everything is data, but certainly data will help to identify new sources of business going forward, and also um, systems will help to um, unlock that business potential going forward.
1: Hmm. Cool, and, um, and, and do you think it's different for um, other consumer goods like uh, uh, that are uh, trying to go down the route between um, everywhere from foodstuffs to uh, consumer products to, to luxury goods, do you think it's the same applies?
0: Yeah, so um, we've seen quite uh, many examples in the last couple of years. So, for example, Nike, they went to uh, not yet pure direct to consumer uh, model, but they are pushing it really hard because they have identified that going through their own channels um, is uh, costing them less money. And they are actually, they have increased their margins significantly through that step. And um, they, they, they are um, prioritizing all the direct channels over all the third-party uh, channels, and they are actually trying to eliminate the third-party channels uh, step by step. Another example would actually be Apple. Um, Apple also had or, or felt uh, the, the pressure to introduce um, their direct uh, links to the to the customer when they established the apple stores they they did it for a different reason they didn't necessarily wanted to um, cut cost but they wanted to massively improve their customer experience and to give people um, a space to come to to show that actually apple products are working and uh, that they have the confidence that you can actually switch from a Windows based computer uh, to Apple and that they have people on site that can actually help you with that transition. And through that, they actually saved the company. And now you see how, how bright that future was that they were creating back then.
1: Yeah, we all thought they were a bit crazy when they started opening up stores, right? And now uh, you see how it. What do, you, what do you think the percentage of channel for people who are making a transition between direct to consumer versus traditional channels? What do you think the percentage switch is? Um, what, is it going to be 100% direct to consumer or do you think there will always be an existing a place for the existing channel and to coexist?
0: It, I would say it, it really depends on your strategy that you are driving as a, a manufacturer. So for example, Nike, I think they will probably end up in the end with pure direct to consumer. Other uh, players like Apple, they actually embrace also still the third party retailers. Uh, like Gravis, for example, and they um, they actually coexist, or, or the, the the different channels, the direct and the non-direct channels coexist with each other, and they are um, having a different philosophy. They want to uh, perfectly support the channel that the customer is using because their highest aim is a perfect customer experience, and the the customer should choose what he or she feels most comfortable with. And be able to serve them across without creating those conflicts. Yeah. Another interesting example is uh, also McDonald's, I think, because uh, McDonald's is also a um, franchisee model um, with third-party investors owning the actual shops. But they also wanted to enter the digital space and they created their um, McDonald's app where you can hop on, you can find a store, you can actually pre-order, or you can actually order in the store or um, before you arrive, your your burgers, and you can do the actual purchase. But the the app is run by the national uh, sales company or the the kind of the OEM of uh, the food industry. Um, The the shop is then owned and run by a, a local investor. But... They they work really seamlessly together because you can see you order it um on, on on your app and it comes out of the store locally in your branch that you are currently visiting. So I think this is a, a good best practice example how it really can fit together and uh how you can enable direct-to-consumer communication um but still empower your existing network. And your existing distribution franchisees in that example yeah yeah Yeah. so it doesn't mean that direct to consumer always means that the that the local branches are actually losing out it's it can also be a fruitful combination
1: that's a great example actually so yes you've got some really good examples and and overview there let's quickly switch tack in terms of a couple of questions a bit more about you sure i have my 10 questions (laughs) here quick rapid fire um aob so uh coffee or tea coffee Morning or evening?
0: Evening. All consultants right oh, now.
1: Uh, yes or perhaps?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Iron Man or Superman? Superman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, disruption or transformation?
0: Disruption <laughs> or transformation?
1: Oh, and transformation. Is okay. <laughs> you it Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. You're an Instagrammer. Okay. Um, A live concert or live streaming?
0: Live concert.
1: Cloud or GDPR? Cloud. Consult or constraint? Consult. Uh, Laissez-faire or laissez-aller? Can (laughs) I pronounce (laughs) that correct?
0: Laissez-faire. All right,
1: fantastic. (laughs) Um, So so maybe that's a good segue to my next kind of uh, question is, you obviously you, know, you spent a of time of your career in, in automotive, um, primarily focused on sales distribution, marketing. What's kind of been your biggest kind of challenge or, or failure uh, in terms of that you've learned from being able to apply to drive success?
0: Yeah, so that was definitely uh, during my time at Jaguar Land Rover when I was in the UK. Uh, I was back then the global digital and CRM director. And uh, we had a a global template of a a Salesforce and SAP uh, kind of tech stack that we were trying to force onto the markets um, globally. And uh, yeah, the failure was that in the beginning, we said, look, this is a headquarter decision. Uh, This is a global template. You have to use it. And no matter what you do, this is now the the, the kind of... um, the 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 system and the solution that you that you have to adopt uh, globally, and um, that didn't work <laughs> with the markets, um, because uh, the the rollout was too slow and people were starting uh, creating shadow IT and and coming up with their own solutions. And uh, I guess what we learned was that um, first of all, the power of change management and taking people onto the journey Mm -hmm. and making sure that you don't have the not invented here principle. Um, That was, that was the first learning. And the second was that there's actually more flexibility um, than you guess at the beginning that you, you do not have to choose from all global and one global template and that's it or uh, everybody does whatever they want, a local solution. There are also kind of shadows of gray in between. So, for example, you can go with a, a standardized data model so that you enable the reporting and maybe also the data analytics uh, that you want to do in headquarter. But at the same time, you are not giving up the agility um, of, the, of the markets and also the kind of adoption um, to local nuances that you sometimes need of, of these systems. Um,
1: and uh, I guess in terms of direct-to-consumer, I guess this sort of applies in terms of how you if you're a global brand, how you roll it out into the individual markets, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So at the moment, I mean, we are actively helping several uh, automotive OEMs with their rollout um, of their of their um, direct to consumer sales models, and we are um, heavily uh, interacting um, or, or are actually helping with the with the rollouts locally in the markets. So we are in between the headquarter and the markets. And what we are doing there is to consult actually both sides uh, to work with each other and to, to make it work and to find these kind of right level of gray in between the black and the white in order to make it in the end successful and make it successful for both parties. That headquarter is getting what they are trying to achieve in terms of direct to consumer and a better customer experience. And at the same time, they are not losing the markets and the buy-in and the agility of the local entities.
1: Yeah and I guess it's also about having to, to some extent what is the platform that you can scale globally to, from both a cost perspective and a speed of deployment um, but then to your point how do you provide a level of flexibility to then localize and regionalize that platform for the local requirements and local market demand. Yeah exactly. Uh, yeah it's an interesting uh, challenge which we're all living through uh, in terms of our day jobs. Um, So in terms of if you kind of cast your mind forward then, uh, you're doing some really interesting work around future strategies uh, or companies to do. Where do you think this is going to go? We're in a transition at the moment, it feels like, where some industries are further ahead on this direct-to-consumer journey.
0: Yeah.
1: um, And some startups are are way ahead and kind of almost demonstrating what the art of the possible is. Where do you think this is going to go
0: in the next five to ten years yeah, I think um, the next thing uh, after direct-to-consumer and when uh, OEMs and also other industries have managed to uh, directly interact with their consumers, uh, the next level is that they will create communities, true communities of brand ambassadors, and they can then be used for two reasons. A, to be kind of a sounding board for what services or digital services are actually Um, resonating with the the target group, so they can help creating the right level of services, and then um, uh, uh, combined with, uh, for example, a, a service factory that they have to or can establish, they can then rapidly come to an MVP stage, and then that MVP stage can directly be tried out with the same community again. And that, of course, is also another benefit of the community that it actually lends warmly with some friends who are willing to, uh, uh, to to use the services and then ultimately also hopefully uh, paying for these services. So it's also a distribution channel that is generating then revenue. Yes. So you almost create a, uh, a super
1: fan base um, that helps to shape the future product requirements or demand for what they want, the customer base wants to see, right? And then yeah. effectively become your product innovation uh, kind of uh,
0: function, really. Uh, Exactly. But um, you have to remember that you actually have to actively manage also that community. So you have to invest into it. Uh, You have to create content that is relevant for them. And you really have to take them serious. And you cannot just push things. This is kind of uh, uh, old school marketing that you are just pushing messages out there and you hope that they hit somebody um what consumers of the future want is a true dialogue and they want they want to be uh taken serious by the brands if you are managing that i think you can also be successful in this space and create uh again um additional revenue um sources for you and yeah.
1: in, in terms of embracing that vision
0: um i guess there's
1: there's a, the alternative option is everyone sells stuff through platform like uh, uh, an Amazon right uh, Amazon prime and you give up that that sort of brand uh, direct to consumer changes so I'm just gonna sh- I'm just gonna sell through a, an intermediary like Amazon what do, you, what do you think the decision criteria should be for those two options
0: mm, I think that the question is do you have a brand that is uh, strong enough to actually create your own fan base and people are willing to kind of add this additional ecosystem to their everyday lives and, and invest the time into it. If you are a strong brand, you can do that. But if you are a, a brand that is just being consumed and it doesn't really matter what kind of name it is or what heritage you have or what brand promise you have, I think it will just be uh, uh, go on Amazon and be, and be uh, purchased through these standard channels.
1: And is it one or the other, or do you think you could do both?
0: Mm, It's interesting because Apple, I I saw in Germany, they actually um, sold some of their um, earphones in Aldi, which is a uh, Mm -hmm. low-cost grocery store. So they somehow managed that they can sell, I don't know, uh, €5,000 computers in their own shops with a super branded environment and at the same time have uh, products that are a little bit lower cost and, and a lower entry price through a low-cost uh, reselling channel. And in the end, um, the customer still feels good and has this Apple feeling when they are unpacking the package. And I'm sure every every uh, Apple user knows still this moment when you're getting your new iPhone and you're opening it up and unwrapping it Yeah. This is of course all planned and they put a lot of effort into this, that this really feels good. And they they are successful in using several channels at once. And I guess it's something towards aspiring to. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Okay, last question, As someone who spent pretty much most of his career in the automotive industry, what car do you drive? <laughs> Uh I, I cannot disclose because some of the OEMs might not be happy with that answer. Um no, but uh, I'm dreaming uh still of a Porsche GT3RS. Uh I'm actively working on that. Um hopefully you will help me with that uh, dream. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh seriously, that is uh, one one car that I'm still aspiring to, to drive uh one day. And um yeah, it was it kind of uh I was exposed to it very early in my career and it's still uh, something in my in my head and one day maybe I will fantastic. be there and then you get to use
1: that professional license, racing driver license of yours put it to good use it all comes together then and perhaps <laughs> at Nürburg yeah we'll <laughs> yeah. fantastic really, it's good lovely talking to you thank you very much for thank you John
0: thank you for having me yeah. it was a pleasure thank you